The sermon text is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, of Judea in the days of King Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they, that they had seen when it rose went from them, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. I guess the question I want to start off with this morning is just to ask you if you have ever really been astonished by something. If you've ever been astounded by some piece of art that you've seen, or maybe a, a painting, uh, a book that you've read, or a movie that you've watched. Have you ever had one of those moments where after observing it, the only thing you can really do is just sit there in silence and, and contemplate it and, and think about it? I had one of those moments once when I finished reading the novel Jaber Crow. Has anybody ever read that book before? Uh, it's a really great book, um, but it's about a, a barber in a small town during the industrialization of America. And it's kind of a slow book, honestly. It's long, and it just tells the story of this barber as he observes the lives of these different people and what he learns about them. But as it reaches towards the end, it builds up into this beautiful climax that is kind of its heartbreaking, it's, it's devastating. And I remember after I, I finished the story, I just had to sit there. And I closed the book and I sat there and thought about uh, how awesome it was that the author had built up everything to get to that point, had worked the words to, to move my heart in such a way that all I could do was sit in silence. And honestly, as I've studied this Bible passage this week, I, I've come to, to believe that we have the opportunity for another one of those moments here. That this is a story where we get to observe the artistry of God at work. This, this account of the, the wise men following the star is actually one of these rare moments where we see the intersection between the amazing and the miraculous, but also the scientific and the precise. It's something that I hope, as, as we see it, will cause us to wonder. 
And you know, it's appropriate that we actually get to this passage the week that we lit the joy candle. Because what we find in the story is that as the Magi figure out what's going on, the the response that gets produced in their heart is exactly that. It's one of joyful worship. It's the kind of worship that when I see it, I long for that kind of worship in my own life. It's the kind of worship that, truthfully, I long for in your lives. And and so my hope is that this morning we might be able to get there. And in order to get there, though, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to drop some knowledge on you today. <laughs> I got to I got to let you know some of the things that I've been studying this week. So um so that's what we're going to do. First, I'm just going to very simply try to explain to you what's going on with this this strange star and and its meaning. And then after that, I want us to then start to look at the responses that these experts give to what they've seen. And then Hopefully at the end, we'll be able to just kind of sit back and look and try to observe some of the beauty behind this moment. So, so let's, let's start with the star. Uh, our passage begins verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up. And if you, you don't own a Bible, take one of those ones in your seat and, and make it yours. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Okay, so last week, if you were here, I mentioned that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written to tell us the story about who Jesus is, but also to convince us that we should believe in his claims. Scholars, they call these books uh, historical biographies with a theological motivation. In other words, they, they want to tell us some true historical facts, but those facts are meant to persuade us of some truths about God, some things that we should believe that result from those facts. So these are histories. But if you've read them before, you know that these are histories that are often filled with miraculous stuff. They're histories that have a lot of unbelievable things in them. And because of that, uh, people often question them. People often doubt them. People often, you know, some people have even made it their career to, to pick them apart and discredit and disprove them. And from time to time in these moments, uh, these, these questionable texts, archaeology has come along to support the claims of Scripture. I don't know if you are aware of this, but... Uh, that was the case with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is, is the governor. He has a big role uh, during Christ's crucifixion. And for years, scholars doubted whether he really existed at all. Uh, they, there were accounts of him in the Bible. There were some writings about him uh, in some other Jewish texts. But there was really no uh, archaeological evidence that he existed. Uh, but then in 1961, an Italian... Uh, man found uh, a lime, a piece of, of, of limestone in the ruins of this old stadium in Caesarea. And the limestone had engraved on it Pontius Pilate prefect. And ever since then, the existence of, of Pilate has actually been considered one of the most solid historical facts that you can find in, in the Gospels. In fact, so much that I had uh, an atheist friend who was one of these Bible scholars, and he he told me that 
the only thing he could say for certain, the only line of the Apostles' Creed that he could recite was that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That, it, it went from this thing that, that everyone disputed to this thing that everyone believed. So that happens occasionally with archaeology, but it rarely happens with astronomy. Um, but this week, uh, I have been reading a really interesting book. Um, and, and I want to tell you, it's, talking about this stuff is, is a little strange for me because I, I don't really think that demystifying miracles is all that helpful. I don't think that demystifying miracles is, is necessarily the best way to, to lead people to Christ. And, and, and I also want to say there are some things you find in these books that will not be explainable. Like last week, we talked about the incarnation, right? Things that, that defy any possible uh, explanation. But I've been persuaded this week that the star of Bethlehem is not one of those kinds of miracles. And unless you travel in some really specific circles, you may not be aware of some of the advances that have happened in studying this text, even in uh, very recently. Last year, 2015, uh, a scholar named Dr. Colin Nickel uh, published this 370-page book called The Great Christ Comet. And it was a, a detailed uh, attempt to explain exactly what is going on in this beginning uh, piece of Matthew chapter 2. Okay, so it's not a Bible commentary, exactly, this book. Um, but it is a, a technical exploration of the astronomical realities behind this passage, right? It's a book that comes complete with equations, it comes with coordinates, it comes with data that you can plug into modern astronomy software to track this. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, where can I get this great book? I can't wait to read it. Uh, no, no. I, well, don't worry. You don't have to get this book. I got it. <laughs> and I tried my best to read it for you this week. And I'm going to do my best to tell you what this guy has to say, because it's pretty amazing. Uh, what happened was he spent this guy who already had a PhD from Cambridge spent five years of his life diving into astronomy, working alongside of some of the, the greatest experts uh, within the field and trying to, to show how what's going on here was not only something that was scientifically feasible, but something that likely occurred exactly the way it gets described here. And maybe if you, if you do see the book, one of the most uh, exciting things about it is the way the scientific community has responded since its publishing. So uh, Dr. Gary Cronk, who works for the American Meteor Society and wrote this book on cometography, said that in every respect, this book is a remarkable achievement. And I regard it as the most important book ever published on the Star of Bethlehem. And I enthusiastically recommend it. Another guy, uh, Guillermo Gonzalez, who's a professor of astronomy at Ball State, he said, he asked this question in his review. He said, so has Dr. Nichol finally solved the mystery of the star? I'm tempted to say he has. That was, that was his assessment of the book. Um, so quickly, let me just tell you what he says about this uh, in, in a couple of minutes. So what he tries to explain in this book is that what the Magi saw was a long-form comet, uh, somewhat like the comet Hale-Bopp. Does anybody remember that from the 90s? The guy's like, with the white sneakers that tried to go fly up to be on the comet. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it later. 
Um, but, but it was a comet like the Hale-Bopp comet, one that stayed in the sky for a long time. That one was visible for 18 months. And this comet first appeared within the constellation Virgo. The constellation Virgo uh, means the Virgin. And uh, so, in other words, this comet appears and it looks like a a growing light within the inside of this constellation known as the Virgin. And as it, it appears, it's moving in such a way that it appears to grow within this constellation. And as soon as the comet hooks around the sun, um, it is moving kind of against the rotation of the Earth. So all the other stars are moving while this star looks like... Uh, from our perspective on Earth, it looks like it's staying in the same spot while the rest of the stars are moving. And then as things progress, as the orbit of this comet starts to straighten out, it falls out of sync with the rest of the stars. And it looked like to human observers that it would move, it moved down from the constellation Virgo and towards the sun. So basically it looked like it was moving out of the birth canal. And at that point, the comet's tail is going straight up and down, and it looks like a scepter, okay? All right, now, so now let's go back to our, our text. We're dealing with these guys, the magi, and these magi are, are scholars. They're philosophers, but they're also astrologers. Uh, they're astronomers. They're guys who are observing the movements of the skies. Uh, they also had important positions in society. They were advisors to the king. Worth noting, also, they are not kings themselves. Uh, also, the Bible doesn't tell us that there are three of them necessarily. That kind of stuff, we just kind of added to the story along the way. Um, but we just know that these guys were advisors to the king. They were experts in astrology, and they lived in Babylon. Babylon, for centuries, had been the leading spot for this kind of study. Babylon was the hub of ancient astronomy and ancient astrology. And if you don't know the difference, astronomy is the scientific observation of the stars and their movements. And then astrology is the, well, the, the slightly more dubious study of what that might mean for us, uh, trying to make meaning for life out of what we observe in the stars. Um, something else you might recall. We just studied the book of Daniel. Babylon shows up a lot, right? Well, Daniel was most likely a magi. That was his position. Um, and so we have every reason to believe that in Babylon, where there is still a very large, at this period in history, a very large Jewish population, a large Hebrew population left over from the exile, we have a lot of reason to believe that these guys would have been quite familiar with Hebrew Scripture. And so they're watching this scene take place in the sky. They're watching this cosmic birth take place. And then they're recalling these prophecies that they're aware of. These, these prophecies that the exiles at, in that moment uh, certainly saw as prophecies about the Messiah. One of them we read as our Old Testament reading this morning from Numbers. Did you hear it? It said, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so they're looking at this scepter star in the sky. And then also what we read last week from Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. Add to that all the other prophecies that we find in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about this king who is coming, who's going to sit on the throne of David, and they realize, they come to believe that what they're observing in the sky is the declaration that the Messiah has been born and that they should go to Judea. Now, okay, I'm going to spare you any more details about this specific study for a second. And just let's think about that for a minute. Think about how amazing it is that that these magi from the East had an observable and documented reason for this decision to go across the world to arrive at Jerusalem. It's kind of amazing to me to think that the star of Bethlehem was not just some kind of magical star that was zipping across the sky, but uh, instead, this thing that, that scientists and scholars once saw as a tremendous weakness of the gospel of Matthew, they now look at it and they say, well, yeah, that's actually entirely plausible. That actually could have happened exactly that way. Even the motivation makes sense now, right? You can see why they would make the decision to take such a long and treacherous journey all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so, but I do want to mention, even though we can come up with some explanations here, even though we can think of some scientific reasons, it doesn't remove the miraculous part of this, right? Even though we can figure out a little bit about what's going on, it still means that thousands of years prior to this event, thousands of years before this moment, God set those comets in motion (laughs) that were going to declare the birth of his son. Hundreds of years before this happened, he set the prophecies and made them available to the men who would be able to understand what was going on. And you know what? Before the foundation of the world, God set this moment uh, in stone. He began to plan for the day when his son would come to bring salvation to the world. Okay, so that's a little bit about the star. That's a little bit about the meaning. Now, we, now that we have a basic idea, um, I want to turn our attention over to the response that these experts gave to it. I think the story gets pretty interesting as we go on. I don't know if you're interested in scientific stuff like that. I don't know if you're already feeling a little bit amazed by that. Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. Because it's kind of hard to get amazed by these passages, right? We're so familiar with them, aren't we? We know about this star. We've, we've seen this star on the top of every Christmas tree. <laughs> we, we know about these wise men. Some of us, maybe we've, been, we've played the wise men and the, the local Christmas pageant, right? Just, by the way, I never played the wise men in the pageant. I was year after year annually cast as Herod in the play. I don't know why. I don't know, like, the Herod thing they saw in me. But I will say, this passage was my big scene. <laughs> this was my moment for my one line where I said, Go, find this child, and I will join you in your worship. <laughs> I know. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> the point is, The point is that all this tradition can numb us. All the tradition can remove the impact of this stuff from us. But but think about it in this way. These men, these magi, based on their study, make a move of astounding faith. 
based on what they read in Scripture, they were so persuaded by this sign that they left Babylon and went on a 900-mile journey to meet the Messiah. Facts got them thinking about it. But this was a moment of faith. I don't want you to miss it. This was faith. I mean, would you ever do something like that? What would it take? What would it take to persuade you of something that, that you would hop on a camel and, and ride to Wisconsin tonight? <laughs> I think it's astounding. It's, it's amazing to see how devoted they were to this search for truth. How committed they are to this, this act that eventually turns into worship. I mean, you can kind of imagine it, right? What, what it must have been like to ride night after night and sleep out under the stars and see this comet in the sky slowly moving before you. Looking up, camels weighed down with expensive gifts, imagining the day that you're going to get there and might potentially meet the Lord himself. And their faith is precisely what makes the reaction of the other experts in this text so offensive. Did you pick up on it when we read it? Starting in, in verse 2, it said, They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And it says, when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, we're going to talk about Herod next week. Uh, we got a whole sermon devoted to his reaction. But what I want you to pay attention to is not Herod right now, but, but the other guys in the story. The, the experts who so quickly can, can rattle off the prophecy that he's looking for. He says, oh yeah, yeah, the Messiah that you're looking for, he's in Bethlehem. He's, he's four and a half miles from here. <laughs> he's just around the corner, you know, turn left at the end of the street, and there you'll find the Savior we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. I mean, look at this. The people who know the most, the people who should be the most excited about this are completely indifferent. They don't do anything about it. For me, this is kind of horrifying. Because this is me in the story, right? These are the guys, these are the Presbyterian pastors here. <laughs> They're the ones who spend their, their, their weeks with their heads in the Bible they're the ones who claim that they have the best theology. And here, the Magi show up, and they say, oh, we've, we've found the Messiah. And they just dismiss it. They don't even give it a second thought. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it was because they were Magi, right? Maybe it was because they had come from Babylon, and they had these really questionable methods of figuring out that it had happened. Maybe it was because they were Gentiles. But whatever reason it is, they, they dismiss it. And you know, I, I think the real reason is 
is that we are seeing here the beginning of a theme that plays throughout all of the Gospel of Matthew. The real reason is we are seeing here what what happens time and time again as people respond to the coming of Jesus. We see here that two camps are already forming. There is, is one who is full of praise, one who is full of welcome, one who is full of joy and worship. And then there's another that is full of hatred. There's another group that is full of opposition. There's another that's full of indifference and dismissal. And it's what we see all the time, even today. It's what we see in the church, right? We're we're reminded of this over and over again, that there really are two different ways to avoid God. And the first way is the, the common way that we all think about, right? The first way to avoid God is just to be a sinner, you know? To go and live a crazy, wayward life and do all the bad things that people tell you you're not supposed to do. But then there's another, much more subtle, much more dangerous way to avoid God. Do you know that way? It's by being a good person. By being an upstanding man, an upstanding woman, by keeping all the rules. By convincing yourself that you're good enough that you don't really need a Savior. We see that theme that play out all throughout Jesus' ministry, right? It's not the prostitutes. It's not the tax collectors. Those aren't the people who are furthest from salvation. It's not the magi, the pagan worshipers from the East. It's the religious people. It's the ones who think they're okay. It's the ones who think they are righteous. It's the ones who think they've they've done enough. It's the people who have bought into the lies that they are able to stand before God based on their own merit alone. They're the people who don't think they need a Savior. And so we see in these different experts responding, we see the beginning of this paradigm. We see the beginning of this reality that that you often hear talked about as as Christ's upside-down kingdom. This idea that in Christ's kingdom, the people who have the most knowledge often have the least. The people who think they're fine are often the worst off. The ones who think they are found are the ones who are lost. The ones who think they know God are here, sitting in their study, as if nothing has happened. While the foreigner, the stranger, the outsider is welcomed into the very presence of God. So, now that we've seen how these two groups respond, let's just try to to see if we can't observe the beauty here. Verse 9, it tells us, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, so I just want to put in another plug for this book. I think it's a good book. It's worth your time. Um, And it does a really good job of explaining this one probably most unbelievable 
of all the parts of this account. How a star could single out an individual home. And what's interesting is it does it with photographs, with pictures of other comets throughout history that have been observed doing exactly this. You know, maybe you've seen something like this uh, when the moon is really large and very close to the horizon. Maybe you've seen one of those moments where it looks like the moon is practically sitting on someone's roof. Um, but it's, it's pretty common that a comet, when it is close to the horizon, it can look practically like it is touching the Earth. Um, and you can even do a Google search and, and find lots of these pictures of comets pointing to different homes. Um, but this is, in fact, a moment that has been divinely ordained by God. This is a moment where, where God has used this uh, astronomical event to bring these men to the exact home of the Messiah. This Messiah who has, has come to save the not only the people of Israel, but He's come to save the people of the world. As the angels declared to the shepherds in Luke, do you remember? He said that this is going to be good news for all people. This is what these guys are coming to realize. And their response, it shows us that. Verse 11, it says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So these gifts... Uh, Gold, right? It is a gift that, you know why gold is, is worthwhile. It has always been the metal of kings. Frankincense was, a, was an expensive, fragrant, glittering kind of gum. It was made out of a, a rare tree bark. And myrrh was a perfume. And one bottle of that perfume uh, in today's value would be about $10,000. So these are expensive, extravagant gifts. And they were bringing them to the child of a poor carpenter and his mother. But we know why, right? When you go and meet a king, you bring gifts. That's why. They knew they were coming to meet the Messiah, so they brought gifts. And a lot of commentaries, uh, a lot of people have have thought about these gifts and why they, they pick different ones. And, and, and particularly, sometimes people emphasize uh, the myrrh. Because myrrh is, in addition to being a perfume, it's also the fluid that was used to embalm the dead. And I think it's pretty reasonable that if these men were the students of Scripture, that it seems like they would have had to been to get here. If they were the ones who had been studying Numbers and Isaiah and reading for reading these prophecies, if they saw Isaiah's fulfillment in the eyes of this little toddler that they were coming to meet, perhaps they also knew that this boy, Jesus, was going to conquer in much the same way that he had come. That just as he had come to save not the people that 
that were expected, right? Just as he had come to save the outsiders and not just the insiders. He one day was going to rule and conquer in a way that no one expected. Not in power, not in, in might, not through conquest. But he was going to be that man that Isaiah spoke of as the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief, whose suffering would bring our healing, whose death would bring our life. Maybe they knew that this king had come to be a savior, not because he was going to sit on David's earthly throne, but because he was going to stand in your place. He was going to stand in my place. He was going to live the life that no one had ever been able to live. He was going to endure the weakness of human life and yet without sin. And then on the cross, he was going to bear our penalty with his death. Maybe that's why they brought him the myrrh. But whatever the motivation, whatever the reason behind their gifts, I think we should at least stop here and just wonder for a minute. We should stop here and and be amazed for a moment. See this story today with new eyes. That here in this small town, in this unimpressive house, the wise, the powerful, the scholars, these foreign dignitaries had traveled halfway across the world to bow before a child, to give him all that they had, to worship him, the living God made man. And meanwhile, just a few miles north, the men who had claimed to hope for this Messiah probably just sitting around doing nothing, oblivious. They missed it. These first men, these magi, they're filled with joy and worship. And the others are filled with nothing. So what about you? Where is your heart this morning? What has captivated you this season? Matthew wants us to see this. Matthew wants us to see this amazing drama. He wants us to see this beautiful work of art that God has given us. He wants us to have our breath taken away. And do you know why? You know why he's shown us this? It's so that you might respond. It's so that you and I, just like these magi, might respond. That we might be led to see what they saw. Jesus is king. It's so that you might finally bow like they bowed. That you might repent. That you might lay your treasure down at his feet. Your money. Your time. Your life. It's so that you might be shaken out of your indifference. It's so that together, we, 
at this table might come and worship Him. Our King, who's come. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the beauty in Your Word. We're grateful for the majesty and the mystery that is unfolded to us as we dig into these familiar passages. And Lord, what a gift it is that, that we can live in a time where, where uh, we see, once again, that this is truth. That it can be believed. But Lord, if it's truth, that means it must be believed. And if it must be believed, then that means we must worship. And if we must worship, that means we have to come before you and lay down our lives. Father, we pray that this week you might grab our hearts, that you might shake us out of our indifference, that you might move us towards genuine worship today, and we pray, Lord, that we might be transformed. Lord, I pray that you would turn us from our sin, from our idolatry, from the things that distract us from you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.